Um, we're going to continue to try and work on it, see what happens. But let me tell you this. We started this new series. We've launched into this thing uh, starting today, and it's going to take us all summer. I've been talking about it for a few weeks, and it's got a bunch of pieces to it. And basically the premise is this. Like, if you've been coming at all to church with us for any period of time, you know that we have a pretty kind of high picture when it comes to the authority of Scripture. Like, we don't believe that the Bible is a series of suggestions or promises that we're called to sprinkle into our lives or anything like that. But, but we believe deeply that it is God's very word. And as God's word, we're called to live it and obey it. It's called to change us and affect us. And we don't adjust our lives around, uh, or we don't adjust a word around our lives. We adjust our lives around God's word. In fact, you're here the past two weeks. You've heard me talking out of the book of James about our call to live authentically obedient, to be doers of God's word. It's, it's that kind of powerful picture that we have. This is God's spoken word. And even every Sunday morning, you hear me say as we pray, like when we have an encounter with God's word, we deeply believe that we're having an encounter with God. So we have this high picture of the authority of scripture. And so we have this deep passion that on Sunday mornings, what we want to do is get involved in God's word. And so we're going to embark on this journey this summer where we're going to be challenging kind of that principle in in a couple of different categories, okay? So what we've done is basically we've created a window where we as a church can go through the Word together, both individually, we'll study it together, and we'll look at it in groups, and then we're going to look at it together on Sunday morning in an attempt to say, God, we want to be in the Word of God together. Now, a lot of the reason we're doing this is because I know that a lot of us struggle with really kind of daily and intentionally getting involved in time with the Lord, all right? So I hear it over and over again, like, I want to become a better prayer, or I want to become, I want to read more, have better quiet times, or whatever that is. And so we're giving you a tool this summer um, to kind of give you no excuses, to say, I, I'm going to get involved with the Word of God, and I'm going I'm to get my quiet time back together, or I'm going to reinvent my prayer life on some level, and, and we're going to attempt to do this together. So we're using a study that uh, we've got, we've been passing out for the past few weeks um, called Four Sevens, and it's basically a month-long kind of every day of the week journey through the book of, of Luke. But what we're going to do is kind of stretch it out over the course of the summer. So those of you that have picked this up, we are um, going through it from a, Mike, 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 I think we've got all kinds of crazy issues here. So I don't know if it's this or whatever. But um, we're going to be going through it this summer. And we're going to be actually doing two of these studies per week. And there's a schedule in the back. So if you've yet to pick up your copy of that, uh, we encourage you to do it. They're back there in the back. We started this past Sunday. So you basically just kind of catch up, and we can go from there. So we're going to be doing two of these. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically pick one of the texts out each week, and I'm going to be teaching through that text. So as you kind of get involved with the Word on your own during the week, I'm going to be picking that up at the end of the week or kind of at the end of that time, and we're just going to kind of go through it. We have two small groups that are meeting this summer on Tuesday night and on Wednesday night, and the information's on the city, and they're going to be using this book as well. So in all these categories, we're going to attempt to try and get into God's Word together. And this book really is designed to reintroduce you to how to have quiet time with the Lord, how to pray. So for those of you who are like, I just... I need a tool to help me walk through this, and uh, this is kind of what we're, we're going to use. So that being said, it's not too late. We want you to jump on board. We have plenty of books. You can pick one up in the back on your way out, jump into the second, third, and fourth study. There's a little schedule in there, and just kind of follow it along. So we're launching the book of Luke, and I'm going to be doing one of these pieces of text each week. Now, part of me really wants to preach the whole book of Luke, right? But those of you that have been here very long know that we wouldn't get through chapter one by the end of the summer. So we're going to, I'm going to attempt to be really good and just sort of stick with the study. But as we usually preach, like do James or Philippians or Ruth, I mean, I like to go word by word. So this is going to be a bit of a challenge for me. So I'm going to try and 
pick the highlights and bits and pieces as we go together. So this morning, we're going to be jumping into the book of Luke chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open that up. Um, We're actually going to be talking about the birth of Jesus, which seems somewhat out of place, right? I mean, these are our mangers and angels and shepherds and things that belong in the four Sundays around Christmas, not June 1st. Uh, It is somewhat strangely uh, out of place. And it's going to seem a little odd because even as I was reading it and studying and looking at it this week, I thought this just seems a little bit different. Like there should be, it should be cold and things like that and hot chocolate around and all that kind of stuff. But it was, it's, it's going to be strangely out of place. But you got to understand that the, the gospel doesn't really begin here. We oftentimes think the gospel begins with the birth of Jesus, but really the gospel is the good news. It's God's redemptive plan, his story for humankind. And that begins long before the birth of Jesus. God's redemptive plan for humanity begins with creation of the world itself and even beyond. And so God's movement through history and through scripture leads us to the birth of Christ. And so that's where the the person of Jesus and the human flesh begins, but really the picture of God's redemptive story is long before that. So if you've got your Bible in Luke 2, we're going to pray and then I'll give you a little background and we'll just kind of dive into it together. So let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you continue to do in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, I thank you that we get to be reintroduced to the gospel on some level this morning, that on a story that is so familiar to most of us, angels and shepherds and the infant Jesus lying in a manger uh, can be strangely out of context and then maybe in some way strangely new. Lord, and, and I pray that as we look at that text this morning, what we'd see is this call that you have for us to worship, like as, as a community and as individuals, that, that worship really begins and ends with the birth of Jesus. And so, God, we, we're going to be drawn into that picture. And I pray, God, that as, as you do that, as you capture our hearts, it would move us to think differently about, um, about the birth of Christ, about what worship is and isn't, and that, God, you would shape our hearts around it. Take a moment in your own heart and just pray. Ask God to move in you this morning to take a, a very familiar story and uh, turn it into something new and fresh in your heart. Just, just pray that. God, show me something new this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone around you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Pray that God would uh, do something powerful in their lives and in their hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we open your word, that you would be lifted up and exalted, and that you might introduce us into a new part of your character today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Luke, let me give you a little bit of background of the book of Luke. Um, Luke was a Gentile by birth. Um, Most people believe he was a physician by trade. So those of you that are med students may understand that word, physician. Um, But he was a doctor uh, for the lay people out there. So he was a doctor by trade. And he was very well educated, he was Greek, and he had a a deep understanding of all things kind of Greek culture, which made his gospel somewhat kind of different than the others. Now, the gospel of Luke is really one of four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's one of three that we call the synoptic gospels, all right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called the synoptic gospels because they have the same view on things, they're very similar. The word synoptic, when you break it out, basically means um, same view. And so the Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a very similar picture on 
things. They look the same. They have lots of same pieces in them. And so it's one of the synoptic gospels. The gospel of John is a much different gospel that seems to capture the sort of movement of Jesus as God's son and the the miraculous side of Jesus where the other gospels, the synoptics seem to capture a historical movement, birth and life and death and resurrection and those kind of amazing pictures. So Luke is one of those and it is written specifically to one individual, a guy by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus is a Greek name which means lover of God or friend of God. And he's writing to this one individual. And Luke is actually part of a much bigger work because Luke also wrote the book Acts. And most scholars believe that Luke and Acts were all one big book. So they weren't separate. They were one big book, often referred to as Luke-Acts. Because if you read all the way through the book of Luke, as we'll get to, the last word basically isn't the end. It it picks up in the book of Acts. And so most people believe that it was one giant kind of book that we have divided into two books. And so it's a a complete picture, if you will, if you look at them together, from the birth of Christ all the way through the birth of the church, And ultimately the church goes on as Paul waits in uh, Rome uh, basically to be convicted and the church gets handed over basically to the people. And so it is the movement of Jesus through the giving of the church. It's, It's an incredible picture when you read them side by side. But Luke's intention of writing to this guy named Theophilus is really about instruction. Now letters in those days were circulated, so even though it was written to one person, it would have been circulated, and Luke would have known this. So although addressed to this lover of God, friend of God, Theophilus, it would have been circulated around the community so that we can take the book as meaning of instruction. And a lot of its instruction is not on how to live, but instead on how to know and how to be basically believe that this Jesus, this life and death and resurrection of Jesus, should challenge us and compel us to go and proclaim the gospel. So it's a picture of the gospel with a compelling end to go into the world, right, as the church, the the beginning of Acts, and begin to proclaim that truth to the world around us. So it's an instruction book that gives a history, the life, and action of Jesus, death and resurrection, propelling us to go and proclaim this to the world, which is kind of what he does as he instructs this Theophilus and therefore instructs us. So it's kind of a walkthrough, and we're going to begin in chapter 2, this morning as we look at the birth of Jesus. So if you've got to go ahead and open up to chapter 2, verse 8, and uh, we're going to start there. So the short story should sound very familiar, all right? We actually looked at it over Christmas time as well, and so it's just part of that narrative, and it's strikingly, strikingly familiar and uh, I think somewhat reassuring. But this is how it goes. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and we're going to go down through uh, 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 
So super familiar story, right? It's, it is a Christmas story. It's one of those that we unpack those four Sundays of Advent, Advent before Christmas. It's that familiar picture that a lot of us have grown up with, that you have these shepherds out tending their flocks by night, and an angel of the Lord appears before them, and he gives this pronouncement that a Messiah has been born today in the town of David, in the town of Bethlehem, a Messiah has been born. And we have this mental picture of these, these shepherds standing out there with their sheep, and this single angel up there in the sky, and they're kind of listening, and, and, a, and a concert kind of breaks out, and it brings peace on earth, and goodwill to men, and all those kind of things. And the shepherds go in, and they find Mary and Joseph, just as the angel had said, and this baby lying in this feeding trough for animals, right? We've seen the pageants. Most of us may have even been a part of a pageant when we were a kid, and, and, and we remember that story laid out, right? That's a very familiar story to us. And Luke begins this gospel with this picture, and he does it in a really interesting manner, because there's something really powerful about the story when we truly glance at it. Because at the, at the end of the day, it's not a story about shepherds and mangers and angels and donkeys, right? It's, it's not. It's a story about worship. Because this is how God chose to sort of break into humanity. We call that inbreaking the incarnation. Talked about it quite a bit. The incarnation is God becoming flesh. It is the inbreaking of heaven into earth. And it's not something peaceful and it's not something easy. The incarnation was radical and it was violent. John talks about it as light piercing the darkness. It was a violent collision between all that was perfect and holy and sinful humanity. And it didn't come with the ringing of like Christmas bells and hot chocolate and carol sings. It came with a violent collision. We're going to explore that in just a moment. But this is the picture of how God breaks into the world. And I think that God chooses to do it in this immaculate, kind of amazing, incredible way to sort of turn our paradigms about worship upside down and really about who Jesus is. Because look at some of the players, look at some of the pieces involved here, right? So in those days, right, as they were gathered, there were shepherds living out in the fields by night. Shepherds lived with their sheep. It was what they did. They tended them 24 hours a day. And shepherds were on some level, um, they were sort of throwaways. They, They weren't real kind of people. Those weren't real jobs. They were often kind of given to those that had nothing else to do in the family. And that one child would then go and tend the sheep. And the shepherds were just sort of herders by nature. They were solitary. They lived with their sheep, oftentimes alone, maybe only with one or two others. They didn't interact with people in town. And this is how the God of the universe comes and chooses to announce this arrival of his son, not to some regal kind of uh, kingly court, but to this group of shepherds. And it's really remarkable because the picture of shepherds in Scripture is one that God sort of clings to. I don't know if you remember way back in the Old Testament when Samuel was on the hunt for the king, who's going to be the next king of Israel. Saul had kind of gone out of favor with the Lord, and Samuel was called by God to go and find the next king. And so he finds himself in this family, this guy by the name of Jesse, who had these seven sons. And, and Samuel finds himself there, and, he, and God had told him that one of Jesse's sons was going to end up being king of Israel. And so he tells Jesse, and Jesse calls for all of his sons, and he stands them up before Samuel in front of all these people. And Samuel basically walks on this line of these tall, amazing, rugged, beautiful men, right? And he looks at them all, and he basically says, no, 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 no. all the way down the line. And he looks at Jesse, and he says, is this all you've got? And Jesse's going, are you kidding me? This is incredible. Look, look at these boys. And, and, and Samuel looks at him and says, none of these guys are who God is calling to be king. Do you have any others? 
Of course, we know how the story goes. Jesse says, well, yeah, I've got one more. He's the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. He's, he's a shepherd. I didn't even bother to invite him. And Samuel's response is, go get him. We'll wait. And so they wait there, and they go and get David, who turns out to be the greatest king in all of Israel's history, and the line of, becomes the, the lineage of Christ himself. Shepherd, throwaway, castaway. These shepherds, most likely boys, young boys, were throwaways. So how does God choose to announce the arrival of his son, but to a group of throwaways in the Middle Eastern night sky? And I love that picture. So this angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds. And it says that the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. So here's the angel of the Lord that appears in the night sky, and the glory of God, right, which if you really want to read the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, it's a Hebrew word for this incredible holiness, appears all around them. This wasn't sort of that little glow that you see in the pictures, right? This was God's incredible inbreaking. It was the glory of the Lord, and it says the shepherds were terrified. Now, most of us don't pay that much attention to that one word. We read this story and we think about happy things and the, the shepherds were out there and they were watching this angel appear and it was this perfect pictures and teddy bears and, and bubbles fall from the sky and everybody sings together, but it's not the picture at all. God's Shekinah glory explodes to the night sky and the shepherds are petrified, absolutely terrified. Why? Because they are in the presence of holy God. God's holy presence. We see this laid out. If you remember Moses, when he meets God, Mount Sinai, the burning bush, when he falls to the ground and God says, my, my ground that I am on is holy. You will take your shoes. Moses couldn't even look at God, right? It's the same picture that we see when, when Saul, later to become Paul, was on a mission, right, to arrest and persecute Christians. And he's walking the road to Damascus, and it says that the glory of the Lord shone all around him, and Saul fell to the ground, basically blind. This is God's glory. It's not just some full moon night where you kind of see this soft light. I mean, this is power and his glory, and the shepherds are absolutely terrified. But it's not part of our Christmas picture, right? So we've got this, this group of boys, this group of throwaway, castaway shepherds watching a bunch of sheep, right? And God shows up in the middle of their world, and the angel of the Lord appears, and they become terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. So the angel recognizes their fear recognizes that they are petrified and says, listen, do not be afraid. Look, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born. So the angel gives them this incredible news. Don't be afraid. Comforts them. Don't be afraid. God's presence is, is absolutely powerful, but it's, it's okay because I'm bringing you great news, gospel, good news, because today in the town of, Sa- in the town of David, the Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, is born, right? This is incredible news. As Jewish people, this is what they had been longing for. They had been waiting for the call of the coming Messiah. Then in verse 15, it says, Suddenly a company of heavenly angels or heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and singing, right? So as if it wasn't quite enough for this angel of the Lord and God's glory is all around, suddenly, not that picture of, you know, is sort of another easing in, but it was like this majestic movement, and suddenly an angel, group of angels or heavenly hosts appear, and, and I don't know what that group looked like, but I'm guessing it's more than three or four, like you've got this host, which to me has this picture of God doing things on these amazing scales, so you've got this angel surrounded by this host of heaven, and they begin this sort of concert, they begin to chant or sing glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men whom his favor rests. Now, there's a lot in this. 
Most of us know this as that little saying that we see on Christmas. It's like peace on earth or, or peace to men. But we very seldom really read the actual whole verse that's here. Because there's a lot going on. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Right? Most of the greeting cards that we have that we pick out at Walmart in the aisle right before we have Christmas leave off part of this. It's peace on earth and the other part goodwill to men. But there's a really powerful thing that's at play here in this verse, and it talks about the idea that there's peace on earth to men whom God's favor rests. See, when we think about peace, right, here's what we think about. We think about no conflict. We think about peace, we think about Christmas, and we think about having family and not being angry at aunt whatever, uncle so-and-so, and and just getting together, even though he does this or does that, and they're all here, and they're staying at our house, so I just got to get over it, he's on the couch, and we just all get together, and then we sort of fight a little bit, but it's not that big a deal, and Christmas Eve, we all open one present and sing, and we do this, and we go to church, and everybody eats ham or turkey or whatever, and we're peaceful. Or we take it one step farther and we think that Jesus was here to bring peace on earth, no more fighting, Jesus is the ultimate pacifist. So we all get together, hold hands, and sing, we are the world. And we do it in the name of Jesus, and it's great, and that's what's supposed to happen. But that's not the kind of peace that, that Scripture talks about. Jesus is not talk, or scripture does not talk about Jesus as a, a peace at all costs. Everybody get together and feel good. That's not really what peace is. We're talking about something different because the gospel is not peaceful. If you look at the life of Jesus, we're not talking about one of peace. We're talking about one of upheaval, one of countercultural movement. We're talking about a savior that was brutally beaten, crucified, and killed. We're talking about a group of followers that were absolutely following the track of martyrs. Some were thrown to lions, some were burned alive, and it still happens to this day all over the world. This is not peace that we're talking about. But most of us want that. And we think that Christmas and the inbreaking of Christ, this radical collision in the incarnation, is about peace and holding hands and feeling good. And about serving this at the city rescue mission to make sure I understand that I have it a little better than some and I feel better today. It's not what peace is about. What this picture says is that the glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men whom God's favor rests. What basically the kind of peace we're talking about is a peace of the mind and the soul that comes when we surrender our life to this newborn, soon-to-be Savior. The idea that we are absolutely, totally sinful and at odds for all that God is. We've talked about this all this semester, all this past few months, that we are absolutely in our sinfulness at war with who God is. The Bible tells us that we are enemies of God. And our nature is against God's very nature. And by definition, we are not at peace with God. That God in his perfect holiness and all that he is and all of our sinful and, and, and sinfulness cannot be with God and we are at war with God. We are enemies of God because of our evil behavior. But God loved us so much, so deeply loved humanity that he sent his son Jesus to break into the world, holiness, breaking into the sinful humanity. That when we surrender our hearts and lives to this Jesus... We not, we not only find peace for our mind, but we find eternal peace for our soul because Jesus takes our place. We explore this as we looked at the five truths about the death of Jesus. The substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross took my sin and my penalty and exchanged it for God's glory. So the peace that we're talking about here is not a peace like there will be no more fighting and no more ugliness and no more sin and my family will all get along. But the peace we're talking about is that my heart is no longer waging war against God's heart. Because Jesus has exchanged my sin for his glory. So the favor that's being pronounced by the angels, when he's saying peace to those on whom God's favor rests, 
The idea of favor means those that have surrendered their hearts or will surrender their hearts to Jesus will find peace that's unspeakable. That Jesus broke in not to make humanity happy, but to rescue broken, sinful people. That ultimately peace is not about getting along. In fact, peace, even in your own life, isn't about how how to figure out how to just be happy. But the peace is that part of us that comes and quenches our sinfulness. The one thing that we can't overcome, our own sinfulness, and gives our soul ultimate peace with God. Because we know that we are called to live an abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life in heaven. And that can only be done through Christ. So what's happening is as this host of angels appears, this massive kind of inbreaking, this incarnation through the Middle Eastern night sky, they begin to proclaim the ultimate truth. This is the gospel, that we will have peace here on earth, and our sinful, broken humanity will have peace through this Jesus. God's favor rests on us. When we surrender our hearts, give our lives to this, this Savior, right? We'll find peace. And it doesn't mean life's going to get easier. Oftentimes we surrender our lives to Jesus. Life gets harder. It gets more complicated doesn't get worse it just gets more difficult and this was certainly true for these gentlemen and for all those that we see in scripture name one person you meet in scripture in the new testament that meets jesus and life gets better most of the time life gets more complicated right the people around them begin to reject them right the authorities begin to call them into question some of them even cost them their very lives but what they have in their middle of their heart is this deep-seated peace that it's all worth it. Every single part of it is worth it because I've never felt more alive. This is the picture that we see as Christ followers. Yeah, it's not always easy. The culture around you may throw things in your face. Your family may reject you, whatever that may be. We saw this all the time when we were in China. We'd meet these young college kids that had given their life to Christ and their families would completely reject them. They'd lose their jobs, and for some of them, they may even lose their freedom. But what they would tell you to your face is that every part of it was worth it because they've never felt more alive because Jesus has saved them. This is what those heavenly hosts are proclaiming. So at that kind of moment, they just disappear again. And the shepherds are left standing, staring at each other, saying, that was incredible. And so they said, let's go, and we've got to see this for ourselves. So the heavenly host disappeared, and the, and the shepherds take off and run back into to Bethlehem. And I would love to have seen that picture, right, this kind of exuberance of 12- to 13-year-old boys racing to see what they just, this sort of miraculous pronouncement that they had just heard. They left their sheep, which shepherds never did. In fact, if one sheep left, what do they do? They pursued that one sheep. They never left their sheep. They all left them and ran into the city. They ran into Bethlehem, and they found it just as the angel had told them. There was Mary and Joseph and Jesus lying in this manger and the whole little nativity scene that you have on your counter at Christmas. Right? They're all there, chickens, the whole bit. And they see them all, right? I'm sure chickens were there. I don't remember. This isn't in the story, but I imagine chickens were there. They see them all, and they're moved. They just can't believe it. And so what do they do? They begin to tell everyone, right? They begin to spread the word concerning what they had been told and what they had seen. And as they told it, people were amazed. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. So the shepherds go, and they see for their eyes what the angels had told them, and they were absolutely amazed, and they couldn't stop talking about it. They left there in the middle of the night telling everybody they knew, and people were amazed at this. Like, this is incredible. So what did the shepherds do? Well, the only thing they knew, they returned to their sheep. But their lives were changed. They were glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard which were just as they had been told. 
This is the inbreaking of Christ into the world, which is fascinating to me. I mean, it seems like, I mean, if I were in charge, and there's a lot of really great reasons why I should be and why I shouldn't be, but if I were in charge, like, this is not how I would do it, right? You'd want to break into the, the sort of the higher-ups, and, and you'd want to show up to the religious elite, and you'd want to do incredible things. And Herod, who was trying to basically kill all the possibility of this child even being alive by having these kind of male children murdered, genocide, you'd want to show up right in his presence and be like, look, I got one around you. I mean, you'd want to do something amazing. But Jesus, in the picture of the gospel, is so counter to everything that we understand that God shows up in the middle of this group of boys and makes this incredible pronouncement. And it's the ultimate picture of worship. Because what's the response that these guys have? They're terrified, and they begin to be afraid, and then there's comfort, and then this heavenly host shows up, and they begin this kind of concert of concerts in the sky. And after this, these shepherds are moved to movement, they go, and then their lives are changed, which is the ultimate picture of worship. So often we think that worship is what's contained here in these 35 minutes. We sing four songs uh, before communion, five songs normally. I mean, this is worship. We do these things. We sing them. We like them. Some churches do this. Some churches do that. But my worship experience is contained in a 55-minute box. But if you really read Scripture, worship isn't defined by any of those things. There's no picture of this in Scripture. Worship was an expression of all that God is compared to all that I'm not, and it moved me to have a life-altering kind of experience. Worship was me recognizing who I am in comparison to who God is, and that changes me. That's ultimately what worship is, and it's ultimately what happened with these shepherds. Terrified, comfort, sent, going, moving, returning, never the same. I mean, what if that was our picture of worship, that God, I'm so moved by your truth that I can't remain the same, that sometimes even showing up in your presence is terrifying because of I know who I am compared to who you are. We have such a sort of, lackadaisical attitude when it comes to God. Like we see God as this sort of friend and companion and guy on our t-shirt and very seldom do we understand that this is the God of reverence and glory and, and power and sort of petrifying, or petrifying presence. That's the picture that we see in scripture. The God that made the stars, the God that hung everything that we see and formed the trees and made the planets and breathed life into your very lungs is a God of holiness and power and majesty. And worship is our understanding of that God in comparison to who I am, which is an utter and colossal disaster. It's petrifying that that God would love me so much that he would break into humanity so that I might know his son to be rescued and have peace. Not peace and happiness and holding hands, but peace in my soul to know that this is not the end. This place is not the end. That I've been created to know God and to be in his presence. And that ultimately, no matter what life throws at me, I'm at rest. That's the picture, the gospel. And that's where Luke begins. It's the beginning. And I'm going to give away the end, all right? Spoiler alert. It's going to end with worship too. Worship is the beginning of end of our entire Christian experience and everything in between. And so I, I love the fact that this is how we start our journey through the book of Luke and this sort of strangely out of place Christmas story, but being challenged to think differently about worship. Ultimately, this table that we celebrate, we do it on the first of every month, but ultimately the, the picture is, it's that picture. It's this picture of God breaking into our world, God breaking into humanity, and 
redeeming us. And we do this not as a habitual church movement that says, oh, well, we should do it because we were supposed to, but we do it as an expression of worship, of that part of us that says, God, like I want to engage in all that you did for me, and this changes me. Because this truth that you had your body broken and that you shed blood for the forgiveness of my sins changes everything that I am. But this is not a habitual event, but it is a life-changing expression of your love. That this meal ultimately is the capstone on what took place in Luke chapter 2. That some 30-something years later, the God that was born in a manger would die on a tree that he made at the hands of people that he breathed life into so that we might know him. So it's fitting that we look at the beginning and the end, and we celebrate all that is in between. So on that very night that Jesus gathered with his disciples, he took bread, 